He is risen. Amen. So good to see you all this morning. Our text today is going to be from John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. After Jesus died... A horrendous death on the cross, witnessed by his disciples. Those disciples, the Bible tells us, we see these accounts in the gospel, went into despondent grieving, grieving not only their death, the death of their beloved rabbi and friend, but grieving the death of their messianic hopes and dreams. For those Jews who were looking for a Messiah, They were certain that when he comes, he comes conquering and to conquer. 
The coming of the Messiah was expected to look like total victory, much like we expect our Christian lives to look today. The wretched and cursed death Jesus gave himself to on the cross <clears throat> certainly did not look like victory, and it certainly was no death a Messiah would experience, so says the conventional wisdom of man. But God makes foolish the wisdom of this world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this day to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. But Lord, we thank you that this is not the only day we celebrate it. Lord, we celebrate it every week. We assemble together as your church. But we thank you that it's not just every week that we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, but we are to celebrate it every day. For every day you give us a sunrise, a new morning filled with new mercies and loving kindness. And the newness of each day is a reminder of the newness of life that you give to us in Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness. Father, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds today to see the power of your resurrection in a way that we have not seen it before. To know the power of your life in a way that we have not known it before. And to give to us a courage to go out into this world filled with hopelessness and bring the hope and the light of Christ. Father, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see in this uh, account here, it begins in verse 1, that Mary goes to the tomb on the first day of the week. The first day of the week is Sunday. It's what we call our Sunday. So your calendar should start with a Sunday. If it starts with a Monday, they're actually starting your week on the second day. Because Sunday is the first day of the week. And on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, it says, early in the morning. Mary goes to the tomb expecting to find the dead. Mary Magdalene went early to the tomb. She saw the stone rolled away. She then ran to Peter and John and told them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter and John go to the tomb to look for the dead. The body of Jesus is not there. Where is it? Peter and John run to look for the dead. And after receiving the report from Mary Magdalene, they, Peter and John, John is called the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is, this is Peter and John that are running together, racing to the tomb. And John gets to the tomb first and looks in, but, but he does not go in. Peter arrives after John, and Peter goes into the tomb and sees the linen cloth lying there, the cloth that they wrapped the body of Jesus in. He also sees the face covering folded 
or rolled up lying separate from the linen cloths. That's kind of curious. Now, for just a moment, I want to address a myth. Perhaps uh, you've received an email or you've seen a Facebook post about this story of the folded napkin. It's a myth about the napkin found folded together apart from the other linen cloths that had wrapped the body of Jesus. This great story often circulated about this time of year is supposedly telling us the true meaning of, of this folded napkin. How it, it, how it is a tradition that every Jewish boy knows. And how this folded napkin was a cryptic message left by Jesus to signify his certain return. It makes for a great story. It's just not true. It's not rooted and grounded in any fact. It's just a fabrication that found legs on the internet and, and people like to repeat it. But it's not based in fact. This is what we are not to do when we read the Bible. We're not to insert our own peculiarities into the text, no matter how entertaining or amazing they may sound. If there is any significance to the folded face cloth, it could be the thoughtful, calm, and patient diligence obviously exercised by Jesus as he was loosed from the grave clothes in resurrection life. The evidence in the tomb indicates that Jesus did not move with excited, thoughtless hurry like we often do in life. We get so excited, we become so thoughtless in what we're doing that we leave things undone. We don't pay attention to detail. And before we know it, we realize we have forgotten maybe even some of the most important things. That's not who Jesus is. But Jesus moves with thoughtful peace, power, and purpose. Somebody folded that face cloth or rolled up that face cloth on purpose. They didn't just leave grave cloths scattered around the tomb. And it speaks of the thoughtful peace and power and purpose of Jesus the same way he works in your life, in my life, the same way he works in creation. Seeing is not believing. Faith is believing. It's one thing to believe the tomb is empty. It's another thing to believe that he is risen. We are to believe both. We're called to believe both. We're commanded to believe both. The tomb is empty because he is risen. We see John enter the tomb after Peter, and once inside, the scripture tells us it was then that John saw and believed. What did he believe? He believed the report that the tomb was actually empty. Yet both Peter and John still did not understand all that had transpired, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Seeing and believing the tomb is empty was not believing that Christ is risen. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes, the record tells us here in John. Even though the tomb was empty, they obviously did not believe there was a living Jesus who was going to reveal himself to them. 
There seemed to be an air of frustrated impatience about Peter and John. An empty tomb, a mystery they could not solve, nothing to see here. Let's go home, seems to be the thought process. And once they returned to their homes, knowing the tomb is empty, they continued to grieve and weep and disbelieve that he is risen. In that moment, those disciples were walking by sight and not by faith. They believed what they saw. They just did not have faith in what they could not see. That is a temptation we are all subject to and must overcome. The disciples went their way, but Mary lingered at the tomb. Right now, every man should be thankful that women know how to linger. Now, I am jesting, but not entirely. As the men go back to their own homes, Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. Mary is standing at the last place she knew her Lord to be, a tomb now empty. We cannot read the heart of Mary or Peter or John or any of the others, but we can read their actions. The men left, but Mary remained. The men had no hope at an empty tomb, but somehow there was a measure of curious hope that caused Mary to linger at the tomb and prompted her even to look inside. She stooped down and looked into the tomb. Why? What did she think she would see after the men had just departed that empty tomb? Perhaps she was only curious. Whatever prompted her, she was drawn to look inside. Now this is Mary Magdalene out of whom Jesus cast seven demons. So consider that the man who cast seven demons out of Mary had been put into that tomb. Mary witnessed his death. She witnessed his burial. Mary may not have known the fullness of power that was in Jesus, but she knew his power as well as any and more than most. She knew the power that delivered her from the demonic bondage of Satan though it was only a glimpse of the power that was now being revealed to her in the witness of the empty tomb. Even though the empty tomb, even through the empty tomb, Mary peered and she looked into that tomb and she may not have seen the power that that tomb witnessed to. And that empty tomb may not have seemed powerless, it may not have felt or powerful, it may not have seemed powerful, but it was, and it is still today. The empty tomb testifies to the spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the very same spirit that dwells in all who are his. That spirit will give life to our mortal bodies. By grace through faith, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in us, so death no longer has power over us. The death of our body is not the death we should fear, for that death has no power to hold us. It is the death of eternal separation from God. That is the death to fear. That is the death we have been delivered from because Jesus is risen. 
Mary peers inside the tomb, and what does she see? As she wept, stooping down and looking into the tomb, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. The angels addressed her, saying, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. John 20, verses 14 through 16 tell us at that very moment when Mary turned around, she saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus is present even when we do not see him. Jesus is present in your life even when you cannot see him. If you are his child, the promise of Scripture is that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And that is not conditioned upon whether you can, whether you can see him or not. Whether you can see Jesus or not, he is present with you. And Mary's faithful hope that kept her lingering at the empty tomb was rewarded. The reward was not seeing angelic beings. The reward was what happened next. Upon turning around, she saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know it was Jesus. Instead, she thought it was the gardener. How many times does Jesus show up in our life, but we don't recognize him as Jesus? At this point, Mary could not see Jesus but he was present with her. A far more familiar scenario than we realize. Jesus asked her the same question the angels had asked, but added another. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she answers that she, answers that she is looking for the one who was laid in this tomb and implores him to tell her where he may have taken that body and that she will gladly take it away if she only knew where it lay. At that moment, Jesus calls her by name, Mary, and immediately she turns and sees her crucified and risen Lord before her very eyes. Her eyes were restrained until Jesus called her by name. The same is true for us. We cannot see Jesus until Jesus calls us by name. Until then, our eyes are restrained. They are blind to who he is. Until he calls us, we cannot see him, we cannot hear him, we cannot come to him, and we will not worship and adore him. Do you hear his call? Do you see Jesus? Do you know him as your only Savior, as your only true hope? I pray you do. In the last two verses of our text here, We see Mary respond to Jesus. Our response to seeing Jesus must be our worship and our obedience. 
This is what Jesus demands. As soon as Jesus called her name, Mary recognized her Lord and fell down at his feet in worship. Remember, that's what the word worship means. It means to to fall down, to bow down before God. And that's exactly what Mary did, clinging to him. And Jesus instructs her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. The sense here being that it was not time for her to lay at his feet, but to obey his command and to go and convey a message to his disciples. Listen to his words in verse 17. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. And Mary's response upon seeing Jesus was not wrong. It was not wrong for her to fall down at the feet of Jesus and cling to him. It just was not time. As Samuel told Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. Jesus had a mission for Mary to go tell his grieving, despondent, disbelieving disciples that he is risen. The Lord chose Mary, a woman, as his unlikely first messenger of the resurrection. Again, the Lord makes foolish the wisdom of the world. Mary was not only to go and tell the disciples that Jesus is risen, but that he is ascending to his father. Not only his father, but their father. Not only his God, but their God. This was a clear message of faith and hope and victory for his disciples who were overcome with grief, despair, and unbelief. Mary was bringing good news, not only to change their lives, but to change the world. This is what the gospel does. It changes the world. And it changes the world by changing your life, by changing my life, by changing our hearts. The victorious message of the gospel brings hope and faith that produce an obedience and worship that continues to fill the earth, how can we tell? How do we know it's really doing that? Well, it's pretty simple to me. I would say because we're here. A couple of thousand miles from Jerusalem and a couple of thousand years since the empty tomb. Since that empty tomb was first discovered Preaching and proclaiming the gospel that has already literally changed the world. It's still working today. It still continues today, and it will continue even until he comes again. Hearing the truth is not knowing the truth. Mary obeys her Lord and runs to tell his disciples. At the report of a risen Jesus, the immediate reaction of the disciples was unbelief. Mark's account reveals greater detail of the disciples' state of mind as well as the status of their faith three days after the crucifixion of Jesus. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 11. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons... She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. 
And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Luke also provides a picture of their unbelief in Luke chapter 24, verse 11. As Mary comes and gives the report of the risen Lord, here's the response of those men. And their words seemed like idle tales, and they did not believe them. As Mary arrives with the initial report, the scripture records that they mourned and wept and did not believe. They thought the words of the women idle tales. The Lord made sure it was a woman who first gave an eyewitness account of his resurrection. The testimony of women in that culture in that day held little value. The men dismayed dismissed Mary's testimony because it was contrary to what they perceived to be the truth. Jesus may be missing, but they obviously did not believe he is risen. We may sympathize with them as John's record reveals, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. That's in John 20, verse 9. For those who know the scripture... What is, what is our excuse? What is the excuse for our disbelief, for our unbelief, if we know the Scripture? If we have the Scripture. I have a little Bible at home. It's, it's, about, it's about maybe one inch by one inch, maybe a maybe actually two inch by two inch, and it's the Gospel of John, bound in a, leather, a, a little leather binding. And uh, I got that years ago, and they would print these Gospels of John about two by two, and they would smuggle those into Russia behind the Iron Curtain to people who didn't have Bibles. We have countless Bibles sitting on bookshelves across this country collecting dust. We do not have a lack of light. We do not have a lack of God's Word. We have a lack of people who will break it open and actually let it be life to them, to know it, to learn it, to let it reveal not just who God is but who we are and our need for a Savior. Peter and John and the other disciples did not at first believe the report that he was alive and had been seen by Mary. It was too unbelievable for them. They witnessed his death, and what they witnessed left no doubt that Jesus indeed was dead, empty tomb or not. They believed what they saw, not what they heard. They didn't believe what they heard from Mary, and they didn't believe what they heard from Jesus because Jesus gave them clear warning before his death of exactly what would happen. They did not understand that he must rise again from the dead even though Jesus had clearly told them that he must die and he would rise again on the third day. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be 
betray to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Did you catch that? And the third day he will rise again. It's like they didn't even hear that. Here comes the crucifixion. Here comes the burial. Jesus is in the tomb. It's the third day. The women go to the tomb to to finish the preparation for burial, and the tomb is empty. And everyone is shocked. Jesus told them before the fact, Yet they mourned and wept and did not believe. Why is that? It is not unique to these disciples. Think of all the things that God has revealed. So many things he has revealed to us in his word. Still, how often do we find ourselves mourning and weeping and not believing? Or simply indifferent to him or to his word? Hearing the truth is not the same as knowing the truth. The disciples heard the truth first from Jesus himself before his crucifixion and resurrection. They also heard it from Mary as the first witness of the resurrection. They heard it, but they did not believe, at least not yet. We also hear and do not know and do not believe. Perhaps we hear or we read what God has said but we do not listen or we do not understand. Perhaps we simply do not believe what he says. Instead, we conveniently ignore him and believe our own version of things. We all formulate statements of faith in our minds. Every one of us has a statement of faith. Whether you can quote it or not, Whether you can write it down or not, you have a statement of faith that you live with, that you live by. Things we hear and things we know or think we know. The question is whether our statement of faith conforms to the truth as revealed in the statements and the faith contained in God's Word. The Word of God must be our statement of faith, even all we find hard to believe, hard to accept, and hard to understand. His word was not written and preserved to please us, but to save us. The truth is not always convenient or easy to accept, but as we allow it to inconvenience us, you do realize this is what we must allow the truth to do. We must allow the truth to inconvenience us, because only if the truth inconveniences us will we accept it. And and will it be accepted and, and make us free? So the truth that inconveniences us, and why does the truth inconvenience us? Because it challenges what we already may have as a preconceived notion, a preconceived scenario, a preconceived way we think things happen. When Mary comes and gives the report to the men, they already had a preconceived idea of what they knew to be the truth. And even though Mary was speaking the truth to them, They wouldn't have it, they wouldn't hear it because it conflicted with their own truth, their own statement of faith that they had already settled on. 
But God has a way in his grace of making sure that his truth will inconvenience us so that we will learn to accept it and then it will make us free. It will set us free. And if the truth has not set you free, then you can't really understand what that means to have the truth set you free. Mary understood. The truth set her free. Jesus set her free. And she understood as well as anybody what it meant to be bound and what it means to be free. And every one of us who have been set free from Jesus should know what it means to be bound and what it means to be free. But sometimes we forget. And God in his grace has a way of helping us remember. The word of God must be our statement of faith. No matter how inconvenient it may be for us, God reveals his truth to us in Jesus. Knowing the truth sets us free. A person must hear the truth and experience the truth before they will know the truth. Once they know it, the truth will make them free. That's exactly what Jesus taught in John 8, 32, when he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And then in John 8, 36, he proclaims, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. That is the truth. That's not, just a, that's not just a throwaway statement by Jesus. That is the truth. We cannot know the truth apart from the Son. We may know true things. We may read true things. We may read the truth. But Jesus, who is the truth, who is the way, who is the life, is the only truth that can make us free indeed. God has revealed Jesus to us in his word, by his spirit. The revelation of Christ comes to us by the spirit, but he most clearly is revealed to us in Holy Scripture. That is where we see him today. Just as Jesus did with his disciples, he revealed himself to them in the word of God. We see this with the disciples that encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And they're walking and they're talking about all the things that had happened in Jerusalem. And they had no clue it was Jesus. And they did not see him as Jesus until Jesus unrestrained their eyes, took away the blinders, and then they could see clearly. But listen to what it says in Luke 24, 27. Jesus is talking to these disciples and it says, in beginning... At Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's not even the New Testament scriptures. That's the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus expounded them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They still did not see Jesus as he sat at the table with them, as he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened and they knew him. And once they knew him, they knew the truth confirmed in the word of God that sets men free. It is in seeing Jesus that we come to know the truth. The Jesus we must see is not a Jesus of our own making, but the Jesus who defies our making. 
the Jesus that cannot be made or created or imagined. We are not to see any Jesus but the eternal Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus who has risen and ascended to the majesty on high, the Jesus who is the God-man, the agent of creation, the eternal Son who is the second person of the triune Godhead, the Jesus of the empty tomb. This is the Jesus we must see. Pray he gives you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to know and to trust him. Pray to know Jesus. Pray to be set free. This is the Jesus who is risen and who reigns as Lord of all. Not will reign one day, but does reign today. He is today the Lord of lords and the King of kings. This Jesus alone can say can save us. This Jesus alone can make us free, for this Jesus alone is the truth. This is the risen Jesus who rules and reigns victorious as Lord of all. This is the Jesus who was rejected and despised by his own, and he is still rejected, and he is still despised today by those who need him most. When Mary wanted to lay at the feet of Jesus and cling to him, Jesus said, it's not time, Mary. It's time for you to get up and go and tell my disciples who are in a crisis of faith and unbelief and hopelessness, go and tell them the good news that I am risen, that I am ascending to my Father and their Father and to my God and their God. It is time to go tell the grieving, despairing, and unbelieving that Jesus is risen. It was time for Mary to do that in her day. It is time for us to do that in our day. Instead, we want to stay in our churches. We want to build attractional magnets to draw people into our buildings, but Jesus never said to do that. Jesus never said, if you get creative enough with gimmicks, you'll get a lot of people to come to your church. You can give away prizes, you can have games, you can have all kinds of things. I'm not against prizes and games, but I am against prizes and games as a method to try to draw people into the church. That's wrong. And it's wrong because those methods and those gimmicks will not save anyone. If they come for a bicycle... If they come for a prize, if they come for a gimmick, you better have a better gimmick because when they grow, grow tired of that gimmick, you're going to need a better one to keep them. But if they come for Jesus, if they come for the risen Savior, the only one who can save them, the only one who can change them, the only one who can set them free, and they feel the need because of their sin, because of their bondage, and they come to Jesus and they are set free through the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is nothing in heaven, there is nothing on earth, there is no force of hell, no demon who can keep them from loving and serving and worshiping their Savior. It is time to go tell the grieving, despairing, and unbelieving that Jesus is risen before we cast stones at those unbelieving Jews who rejected their Messiah because he did not fit the job description they had themselves crafted, 
Remember, God made us in his image. We don't make God in our image, but that's exactly what we do. And then we get disillusioned with him because the God we created in our own image didn't do what we wanted him to do. Before we cast stones at those unbelieving Jews, we need to examine our own hearts. For we have been just as guilty as those Jews in Jesus' day in looking for and anticipating a Savior who will come and rescue us from the evils of this world rather than empower us to face them and overcome them and conquer the world. Jesus did not die and rise from the dead so that we could prepare for our exit. He died to give us his resurrection life so that we would be saved and then prepare to conquer the world. In our own anticipation of a Savior, in our hopes to be saved from the evil around us and in us, we have often looked for and looked to those who have no power at all to save us. That would include ourselves. Most people, whether they realize it or not, are trusting in themselves to save themselves. It's a futile effort. In fact, many of those we have seen as would-be saviors have actually turned out to be the very ones to enslave us in greater and more sinister ways. Looking to our political leaders is a good example. The initial in front of someone's name or title does not determine their status as savior, quite the contrary. However we label the politics, it's still politics and it cannot save us. It may help us, it may hurt us, but it cannot ultimately save us. Only Jesus can save us. More specifically, only the Jesus revealed to us in the scripture can save us. This is the Jesus whose tomb is empty. It was empty that morning of the first day of the week. It is still empty today. He arose on the third day, just as he had told his disciples. This is the resurrected Jesus we celebrate today. It's the resurrected Jesus we celebrate each week as we come to this table. It is the celebrated Jesus. It is the resurrected Jesus we should celebrate each and every day. Because each and every day, if you are his, you walk, you live, you move and have your being in his resurrected life. Amen? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us prepare to come to the Lord's table. You do not have to be a member of Christ Fellowship Church to come to this table. We ask that you be a member of the body of Christ. If you count yourself a covenant member of God's family, if you have been baptized into Jesus, if you've been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whether you're this tall or this tall, like Jesse here, you are welcome to this table, young and old. So church, welcome to Jesus. Let us all stand to receive our charge, our commission. If there was any doubt about who Jesus of Nazareth is, there should be no doubt now. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. 
He is the Lord of glory who has overcome death in the grave. He is the risen Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God commands us to command men to trust in Jesus. It is not a suggestion. It is not an option we present for their consideration. Their unbelief presents no other option but eternal death and damnation. And we are commanded to proclaim his gospel as the only means by which they may be saved. We must proclaim to men and present to men through our own lives and through our own words, speaking his word. The Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus who is risen, the Jesus who is Lord of all, the Jesus we create in our own imagining or the Jesus based on what someone else's imagination imagined will never save us. It is the Jesus of the Word, not the Jesus of the world who will save us. It is the Jesus who is the Word that saves us, the Jesus who came to earth to live and die and rise again for us, it is that risen Jesus to whom we must look and to whom we humbly submit in faith. And only then will we know we too are risen with him. Christian, rejoice, spread the good news. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom. Praise God, I love that. I love that. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Have a blessed, wonderful Easter.